This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know, this week featuring Baruch Cohen. Baruch is a fascinating and multifaceted individual. He is a trial attorney and a very accomplished one at that, a litigator. He's a fierce defender, not just defender, but proactive advocate for the land of Israel, the state of Israel. And he's also a father whose daughter tragically passed away around 17 years ago, and he has since written extensively on the topics of grief, in particular parental grief, and been a source great comfort to those who have suffered similar tragedies in their lives. And we'll hear from Baruch in just a moment. Meanwhile, a reminder is always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Please subscribe wherever you may be listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and so forth. Please let others know about this podcast as well. Email for sponsorships or other general inquiries at JewsYouShouldKnow at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with litigator, Israel advocate, and father, Baruch Cohen. We are here with attorney, Israel advocate, and uh, author, Baruch Cohen. How are you? Good morning, Ari. Wonderful. Thank you. How are you? Doing amazing. Thank you so much for joining and uh, we're recording here on a fast day, so I'm a little bit deeper into the fast day, given that I'm on the East Coast, you're in LA on the West Coast, so uh, you're three hours less hungry than I am, but that's okay. Well, you should know that when I go to trial, I don't eat and I don't drink, because it's better to work on an empty stomach, so I'm used to fasting. Oh, that's, that gives me some encouragement, okay, so better to interview on an empty stomach than as well, I guess. So thanks for joining us, Baruch, and... You know, I've read a lot about you over the years. I've heard heard your name in the news in, in different ways and different times, but I don't really know much about your your story overall. Kind of where did it all start? Where did you grow up? And what was your early uh, life like? Well, uh, I was raised as an Orthodox Jew, grew up in Far Rockaway, New York. My parents were religious Zionists. My father was the head of the Jewish National Fund, the JNF. My mother was a child of a Hasidic family, a Holocaust survivor from the community of Vizhnitz. Wow. Rabbi Moshe Chait, the rabbi of our shul, Rabbi Baruch Chait, his son from the rabbi's sons, were our leaders. My parents made Aliyah to Lawrence in the five towns subsequently <laughs> thereafter. Um, I come from a long line of rabbis, son after son, going back 50 generations. Went to Camp Tarvadas, yeshiva all my life. Went to college, balanced college and yeshiva concurrently. Went to law school. Uh, migrated out to the West Coast, where it's beautiful and sunny. Graduated law school, clerked for various bankruptcy judges. Went on my own, was a practicing bankruptcy attorney for many years. Then I decided to embrace my true calling, and that is to be a trial attorney, a litigator. So this was a fascinating uh, culture comp because when I was raised in an Orthodox world, yeshivas uh, rabbinical schools within the Orthodox world were encouraging one to continue only the path of rabbinic studies. 
And I kind of balanced the world of Torah and the world of religion with the world of a secular career in the world of litigation trial work. So let's go back into the early days, back into Far Rockaway. My wife is actually from Far Rockaway, so I know it quite well. My in-laws still live there on Empire Avenue, right near the White Chul, right across from Reed's Lane. Tell so what street did you grow up on? Well, I grew up in Bayswater, and the uh, uh, Bayswater was sort of like a bubble within Far Rockaway. Yeah. And uh, it was a very cohesive community, very modern Orthodox community. When we moved to Lawrence, we davened at the White Shul under Rabbi Pelkowitz. Sure. I lived on uh, Rand Place in Lawrence and I uh, went to Yeshiva of Far Rockaway. I went my senior year to Adelphia Yeshiva because I was wanted to up my game in learning. The great Rabbi Trank. Rabbi Trank. And then I, my entire post high school years of learning was in the Yeshiva Chafetz Chaim in Yerushalayim and in Forest Hills. Then it was in Forest Hills. You know, it's funny you say you made uh, Aliyah to Lawrence. Nowadays, the housing prices in Far Rockaway, it's not much of an Aliyah, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> Far Rockaway is almost as expensive as Lawrence, just uh, with lower property taxes. Right, but when I was in Far Rockaway, we swam in the beach. And when I was in Lawrence, we were able to swim in the Woodmere uh, pool. So that was a, that was a move up. <laughs> yeah, the five towns has changed quite a bit, I'm sure, since you were, since you were there. Well, I will tell you that uh, I was profoundly influenced living in Bayswater by a visiting rabbi who spent his summers there. His name was Rabbi Meir Kahana. He was the head of the JDL. Interesting. And I went to all of his classes and uh, much to the uh, disappointment of my parents because they did not approve of it. And I developed a certain advocacy and militance and you know, strength of character and defending the downtrodden and defending Israel from all of the media bias. So that made a profound impact on me as a child. That's so interesting. That, that was kind of like his summer home, his summer vacation spot? He spent his summers with various families in Bayswater. And uh, I literally went to every single speech he gave in Bayswater. This is like the early 80s you're talking? We're talking, I was growing up in Bayswater in the late 60s, the 70s, and the early 80s. Do you remember, uh, I'm sure you do remember, where, where you were when he was assassinated? I was living in Los Angeles at the time, and I was crestfallen. I was totally shocked. And uh, in fact, my brother-in-law, who was learning in Chaim Berlin at the time, went to hear Rabbi Kahana speak a night or two before he was murdered. Wow. But I, I quote from Mayor Kahana in many of my speeches, and um, I'm not afraid to have the affiliation. I'm quite proud of the affiliation. Did you uh, have a personal relationship with him or you were just kind of a, a passive listener? Uh, a little bit of both. We walked to and from shul together. Well, you know, when you walk to shul together and the trek was a good 25 minutes, you learn a lot about the person. And I was very impressionable. And he was friends with my father, friends, acquainted with my father. And many times we would cross streets. If I wasn't holding my father's hand, I was holding Rabbi Mayor Kahana's hand. He was a very warm, very warm person, and he never he never uh, dropped his guard. He was always on guard, defending what's right. And I mean, it's fascinating. He's become such a you know a lightning rod and so such a controversial figure. Obviously, eventually was you know banned from the Knesset. I had two recent experiences. One is I interviewed Rabbi uh, Rabbi Rakefet, 
who's you know historian and, and, a, and a rabbi teacher, a longtime teacher in uh, Shiva University in in Israel. Rabbi Aaron Rakefet Rothkoff. That's right, exactly. And he was in Bnei Akiva with Mayor Kahana, uh, so he was a good you know close personal friend. And then also recently, my, my friend Rabbi Yehuda Geberer, uh, who has a Jewish History Soundbites podcast, recently did a multi part series on the life of Mayor Kahana. And just interesting to hear you know a different. You know, different periods in his life and, you know, maybe the kind of what could have been and choices that he made at different points and, and the way he was perceived by the Jewish public. It's a fascinating character. And, and well, a lot I, should of- also, I should also tell you that when I was in Beis Medish, when I was in post-high school, uh, rabbinical school, I made it my practice to use my spare time to go listen to other people lecture. I would go to different rabbinical schools and hear a class from this dean and that dean. And that was frowned upon in my yeshiva because they only wanted me to hear classes from their dean. And I also went to a court a lot during my lunch breaks. And I went to Rabbi Kahana's lectures as well. So I, I wanted to learn from everybody, basically. So I developed a, a blend of religious Zionism, Torah authentic dedication, and love for Israel. What was your first experience actually going to Israel? Believe it or not, my first, even though my father was ahead of the JNF and went to Israel quite frequently, my first year was in 1980-81, my gap year, so to speak. People say you took a year off to learning. I say I took on a year. And uh, the rabbi of my shul, Rabbi Moshe Chait, was the Rosh Hashiva, the head of the school. And that was my first exposure. I was there when Anatoly Sharansky was freed from Soviet prison and decided to walk to the Kotel and say his thanks. Also been on the podcast, by the way, just to a shameless plug there. <laughs> shameless plugs are great. But it was, a year of, it was a year of tremendous growth. And it was a year that really helped solidify the trajectory of my life. I sort of knew what I wanted. I didn't have the ideas in concrete yet. But I did develop that year one major goal that stuck with me that I tell all the kids that I mentor. And that is, I decided that I was going to look around to see role models that I want to pattern my life after and see what they're doing five years from now, because maybe I'll be doing that five years from now. So even though my, my professional plans were not necessarily cemented yet, everything was up for grabs. I was on reconnaissance looking for orthodox professionals that never compromised their values that I could emulate. You, you ended up venturing into the law and, you know, it's certainly uh, not an unpopular choice for a nice Jewish boy. A lot of Jewish lawyers out there. Uh, what about law called you? Well, uh, while I was in rabbinical school, I studied the law of the prophets, Daniel, Ezekiel, and as a lawyer, I studied the prophets of law, okay? It just so happens that all of the professionals that I was attracted to were lawyers. I was looking at rabbinical graduates who went to Columbia, NYU, even Yale and Harvard, and there was something about their balance and their commitment to learning just struck me. In fact, I want to give a shameless plug. When I was in camp, there was a Chaim David Zwiebel, who is now the head of Aguda. And I was 
in awe of him and his giving shiurim and his learning that I very much said to myself, I want to be like him. Or Rabbi Baruch Chait from the Rabbi's sons, I idolized him. I wanted to be like him, although he's not a lawyer. But, you know, law is very consistent with Torah learning. You have to have precedent. But what I found most exciting about law was the ability to represent somebody who feels like they're trapped and they have no hope and to give them a voice, whether they be a, a battered spouse, an abused spouse, or whether someone is being accused wrongfully with an allegation of financial impropriety, or if somebody is screwed out of their money and now you know needs to seek redress. So one of the things I made a commitment of doing is to push my Jewish clients to arbitrate their cases before a based in before a Jewish arbitrational panel. And now I'm very proud of the litigation practice that I've developed where I can, it, it's of great significance for me to say, your honor, I represent so-and-so because when I take a case, I vet it, I research it, and I have to be convinced, and I'm gonna use a Yiddish word, of the Erlichkeit, the sincerity of my client's case. Because if I'm convinced, I'm, I'm excellent in trial. So I have, to, I have to really believe in my client's case. So in other words, when there's ethical dilemmas, for example, and somebody hires you and, and you don't really know if they're actually correct. I mean, many lawyers would say, look, everyone deserves a voice and that's due process. And even if they're the wrong party, so to speak, I'm going to do the best I can for them. You're right, but they don't deserve me as a lawyer. Right. The condition of me representing them and it's in my retainer, you have to be truthful. If I find out that a client lies, I will withdraw immediately before the sun goes down. So if a client says to me, look, Baruch, I do owe the money, but I need, I need some time and I need you to buy me time with this litigation and get me to the settlement table, that's also honorable, you know? But I, you know, I don't really handle the criminal matters. I refer them out. I don't have to get into such nasty gut-wrenching issues, although I did a murder trial a couple of years ago. So, but you know, my clients are told that integrity and MS and truth are the hallmark of my legal practice. How did your legal career start out? Because I know you referenced and, I, and I've read that you've matriculated through various subsects of law and, and so forth. I was actually fascinated by bankruptcy because, you know, how is it that I owe you money on a Monday and on a Tuesday, I don't owe you money anymore? What kind of, what kind of magic is that? And I externed for two uh, bankruptcy judges in Los Angeles. And I was fascinated that it was very text oriented. It was very code oriented, like the Shulchan Aruch, like the Code of Jewish Law. And that attracted me. And it was very legally analytical. And great volumes, great cases and can be won if you analyze the code correctly and know it. So I started doing bankruptcy and I had a tremendous amount of satisfaction helping people out of their debt. But after a while, it became stale for me because I didn't want to be pigeonholed into a certain category. And I wanted to expand and I really wanted to try cases before judges, juries, and abase them. I wanted to do something a little more exciting. And there is probably nothing more professionally gratifying and exciting while wearing a suit than being a trial attorney and actually help people and effectuate change. 
So now I am a uh, litigator, I'm a trial attorney, and I wear a yarmulke in court, which raises some interesting eyebrows, but not enough to deter me. And it's interesting because when I go into court, I could see all the jurors, you know, they're looking at that skull cap, but that's for all of 30 seconds. When they hear a commanding voice and a respectful voice and a compelling voice, it's the facts of the case that win the case, not so much what the lawyer is winning. And when I poll jurors afterwards, no one makes a comment about the yarmulke. It's okay. And when I mentor my law clerks and I tell them, wear the yarmulke. The fact that there are lawyers out there, Orthodox lawyers who don't, they get a pass. It's great. But in this day and age, they should. When you go into major hospitals and you see the chief surgeon and resident wearing a yarmulke, you feel good. When you go into court and you see the judge wearing a yarmulke, you feel good. It's a kiddish Hashem. You're sanctifying God's name. And there's simply no reason for us to be second-class citizens and feel that we have to ask permission to enter into any profession. We've earned it. We've earned it. So I walk in not with arrogance, but with pride. I read a story somewhere that it wasn't always necessarily like that. And you had some equivocation and some uncertainty early in your career about the yarmulke. Actually, uh, I wore a yarmulke throughout law school. And uh, I clerked for, I was externing for a bankruptcy judge at the time. And the dean of the school calls me into his office and says, uh, Mr. Cohn, I don't know how you got this interview, but there's a Wall Street law firm that has a bankruptcy department and they want to interview you. I said, great. I said, but what do you mean you don't know how I got this interview? He says, well, uh, you didn't apply. And they're a, uh, it's a very white shoe firm. White shoe is code word for Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, white Protestant, you know, Kennedys, McGoldricks, you know, you're not going to find uh, any members of the tribe based on the uh, name of the firm. So the dean says, look, uh, we never made an issue. You know, you're here, you're welcome to wear your uh, skull cap and the strings coming out of your pants. He was referring, of course, to my tzitzes. He says, but I want to give you some advice. Being that it's a very waspy law firm, you might want to consider taking off the yarmulke because it would impact your chances of getting a job. So that was a bit of a shock to me because growing up in Far Rockaway, if somebody told me to take off my yarmulke, that was an invitation for a fight. And I had no hesitation getting a bloody nose rather than take off my yarmulke. Anyway, so I, I go back home and I start asking around various Orthodox lawyers at the time in Los Angeles. And everyone said, we don't do that. That's not what we do. Okay. Then I went to a specific rabbi and the rabbi told me that Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who was the, the greatest legal mind of our generation, has a tshuva, a response, permitting one to take off a yarmulke for purposes of a livelihood. I said, okay. I found out from the dean what the starting salary was, and it was just absolutely obscene. So I did the unthinkable. I took off the yarmulke, put it in my pocket, came to the dean's office for the interview, and I said to myself, okay, think Gentile, think Gentile, think Gentile. Like, don't talk Jewish. 
When it was my turn to go into the, into the office, much to my surprise, when I looked at the lawyer who came in from Wall Street, he was wearing a big black velvet yarmulke and his side curls, his payas was tucked underneath the yarmulke. He looked straight at my head. And what do you think the first question he asked me? Where's your yarmulke? Where's your yarmulke? I was so numb. I was shook up. I couldn't even feel my fingers. I even forgot which pocket I put the yarmulke in. And the lawyer basically lectured me that he saw me, he was in court, he saw that I was clerking for the judge. He wanted a Ben Torah. He wanted a from religious orthodox lawyer on his staff. He checked me out. He found out that I'm rabbinic degree, sons of rabbis, etc. And he called me a sellout. He told me that the firm is a firm of leaders, not of followers. The interview is over. Have a nice day. I was stunned. I was shocked. I was actually crying in the car ride coming home because I couldn't believe what happened. But let me tell you something, Ari. That moment was a galvanizing moment in my life because I was listening to what other people were telling me, this is the way things are. And I vowed that is never happening again. I'm going to occupy a piece on the chessboard, and so will they, but they don't have a monopoly on the way things are doing. And if anyone really knew me, they would have understood that I'm made out of tougher stuff. And maybe instead of finding ways for me not to wear a yarmulke, maybe they should have encouraged me to have had the courage to have worn a yarmulke. And I think that's an invaluable lesson to share with people starting their career. When people tell you that's not the way we do things, okay, thank you for your opinion, but I'm going to do it my way, to quote Frank Sinatra. Did you ever uh, reconnect or come back to that partner and talk to him about what you learned from that lesson? Well, actually, uh, he had regret that he was very harsh with me. So he helped me line up a new job and he asked me and I've honored his request to always keep his name anonymous. Until today, we're breaking news. No, <laughs> and I don't reveal his name. But, you know, in a way, I'm grateful that he shut that door in my face because that was a very important lesson that shaped my career and my character. And when people starting a career or people going into court, they see that I'm wearing a yarmulke. It gives them inspiration or chizuk that maybe they can do it as well. What do you enjoy about being a litigator? It's a very specific you know, arena. I think a lot, a lot of kids growing up, when they picture what a lawyer is, they picture a litigator. And they don't realize that the vast majority of lawyers are, are much more just administrative and you know, sitting reviewing contracts all day and stuff like that. It's really a small subset that are the in the courtroom doing the, you know, the LA law, you know, law and order thing. What attracted you to that? And, and what about your personality is suited for it? Well, you're right. Um, I know many lawyers who have never seen the inside of a courtroom. Okay. I'm a master storyteller. While I was in law school, I was a youth director in uh, two, two schools in uh, Los Angeles. And I uh, would tell Shabbos stories to hundreds of children of Shabbos. And the art of telling a story without embellishing and without exaggerating, but to bring life to the story, to make 
the subject of the story real to the listeners was something that I worked hard on. And by the way, I should also tell you that my, after my father passed away, my mother remarried Rabbi Beryl Wine, the famous historian. Also been on the podcast, by the way. <laughs> Another shameless plug. But Rabbi go. Wine speaks about his passion for history because he wanted to bring the rabbis of the Torah alive. And that resonated deeply within me. So look, there's also the financial remuneration of being a trial attorney. You know, you, you sue for a wrongful death or you sue for, you know, a rape or a personal injury and you get a very large verdict and you get a percentage of it. You know, that's, that's a huge financial incentive. Um, but when people watch LA Law and Law and Order and the whole trial takes place within a half hour, that's a fiction because trials can go on, a case could go on for years. Trials could take days, weeks. It's a marathon. It's hard work. It requires preparation and integrity. Integrity with a judge, integrity with opposing counsel, integrity with a jury, right? When I, what you asked, what is it that I love? I mean, I love representing people and helping them. And especially there's a special niche when it comes to Bayesden, Jewish arbitration, when people have this negative disposition or this jaundiced approach and they go, ah, rabbis. I wanted to bring honor to rabbis through my law practice. So even in my retainer agreements with my Jewish clients, it says if we get into a dispute, we go to Bayesden. When I hear of a Jewish plaintiff suing a Jewish defendant in secular court, I'll go to that plaintiff and I'll say, look, there's a halacha, there's a Jewish law against commencing a lawsuit against your fellow Jew in secular court. Would you consider going to Bayesden and I'll represent you and I'll save you money? I think this is the greatest Kiddush Hashem to turn sanctification of God's name so that my practice should be a klisharis l'shem shamayim. It should be a vessel to bring honor to God. So it's a very great significance for me to be able to use my law practice to advance Judaism. What would you say is your favorite part of the trial? Choosing a jury. Jury selection. Interesting. Jury selection. You could win or lose a case at jury selection. Without a question. Everything is important, Right. Everything is important, but I think the most important is jury selection and also first impressions. When I tell the court, I will present evidence showing you X, Y, and Z, they all remember. And if you come short and you don't deliver on your promises, it's going to be a strike against you. So you have to have credibility and you have to deliver in life, not just in litigation, when you say something you have to be able to deliver it. Do you have any uh, heroes, icons in the litigation world that you look towards? I've interviewed Alan Dershowitz on this podcast. You just read my name, Alan Dershowitz. I've read every one of his books. Chutzpah was a defining book. I could drop names, Jerry Spence. You know, there's some great litigators out there. And, and by the way, when I was in yeshiva during my lunch break, I would go to the Queens courthouse during lunch. And then I used to go to Wall Street during lunch to watch trials. And now once a month, I will dedicate a couple of hours to watch 
a great trial attorney do voir dire and jury selection. Interesting. And, you know, I nurture relationships with these great trial attorneys and they're happy to share their strategies with me. And another great thing about being a trial attorney is that I'm always learning. I'm always fine tuning my skills. I'm never complacent. I'm never soft. I stay hungry. And I use that same approach with my learning of Torah. Never complacent, always hungry to learn more. Never soft. Eye of the tiger. Is there a reason you haven't gone into criminal work? You know, especially we talk about defending underprivileged people, people that are maybe wrongfully accused or things of that nature. I think it was, uh, you know, there's a reason I didn't go into divorce law. The one hearing I went to where the fate of the children were at stake, I almost passed out because I just couldn't take the notion of some judge making a decision of who gets the child. That wasn't consistent with my belief system. And many of the criminals who are accused of criminal, you know, they could be scary people, drug dealers, murderers. You know, I don't know that I necessarily wanted to have that type of clientele. How'd you get into, obviously you said early on you were deeply influenced by Mayor Kahana, who was, of course, a firebrand of Israel advocacy and strident pro-Israel opinion. How have you gotten into and, and deployed your passion for Israel you know, when did you get involved with that in a more formalized way? What have you done? How have you gone about defending Israel in the court of public opinion? Excellent. So years ago, if you remember, there was a scandal called the Ravi Mamara. It was a flotilla. This is the, from Turkey? From Turkey. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then I used to watch the news, read the news, and... I was noticing that while the world was accusing Israel of atrocities, the spokespeople, other than Bibi Netanyahu, who's an excellent spokesperson, but every Knesset member then was a bumbling idiot. Accusations were made, you're a racist country, apartheid, and the arguments were not strong. And I was looking at different Jewish advocacy groups at the time. And they were politically correct. They were mild and parav. And it bothered me. And I would go to various functions and I would ask, how come when you spoke out against these accusations against Israel, you didn't come out and go for the jugular? Why didn't you turn it on them? No, they didn't want to do it. So I decided, you know what? If the case for Israel was a trial, not propaganda in the media, but if it was based on trial, based on hardcore evidence, we would win every time. I decided I'm gonna create a blog called American Trial Attorneys in Defense of Israel. And I'm going to post pro-Israel articles. And I'm going to adopt an approach of not defending Israel, but going on the offense. That these Arab countries have no moral standing to accuse Israel of human rights violations when they monopolize the human rights violations themselves and the world gives them a pass to expose the UN for its hypocrisy, et cetera. At that time, do you remember the Maka Beats came out with a song for Hanukkah? I'll tell a tale tale, right? <laughs> sure. 
everyone was circulating and sharing that video. And it occurred to me, if there was a repository of great pro-Israel articles that people would share, I would meet people in shul and say, yeah, I saw a great article. I said, did you share it? Did you share it with your email list? So what I wanted to do was create a blog where people could look up topics. And now the blog is really consumed by my Facebook wall, which is all pro-Israel. And I adopted the philosophy, like in my litigation, you never defend, you attack. Israel does not need to be, and actually Alan Dershowitz published a book, The Case for Israel. And that became my model. And that resulted in public speaking events throughout Southern California. Believe it or not, not only Jewish groups, but also Christian groups that were pro-Israel. They were very, very receptive, very receptive, in many ways more receptive than the, uh, the Jewish groups, believe it or not. And uh, as a result, uh, I received a memento of a, uh, an exploded Qassam missile that went into Stay Road. It's in my office. I bring it with me on my uh, presentations. And again, it's very consistent with my personality of defending and representing my clients and defending Israel. I'll give you an example of an exchange which is very revealing. So my office is in Hancock Park and um, a Jewish lawyer approaches me in the parking lot and says, you know, Baruch, he did not pronounce my name correctly. He says, mind if I ask you a question? I said, sure. He says, I can't understand why Israel won't make peace with the Palestinians. So now listen to the way the question was posed. Before you instinctively answer, you realize that he put Israel on the defensive and it's Israel's fault for there not being peace. So rather than merely respond, I asked him, I said, sir, have you ever had an MRI done? And he looked at me like, counsel, that's a very intrusive question. I said, work with me. Did you have, an, have a CAT scan or an MRI done? Yes. He's around, he was around 65 years old. I said, did they ever find something, if you know what I mean? Yes. Don't have to tell me if it was benign or malignant. So, sir, they found a tumor. Did you make peace with your tumor? Or did you go to war against your tumor? And he looked at me. You know that look of epiphany when the light goes on over someone's head? And it was like a shock. That little brief exchange caused him to do a 180. And then you go in for the kill. I said, Israel's surrounded by Arab countries that want its extermination. With missiles aimed at Israel, ready to kill it. And the PLO and Hamas and Hezbollah, their charters are for the eradication of the state of Israel. So tell me, sir. Do you make peace with people that want to kill you? Or do you go to battle? And having said that, now that you're focused, now I can answer the question on my terms. So it's all about framing the issue. I don't answer these types of questions based on the way the person asks the question. Many times if somebody asks a question, let's assume about Judaism, you can infer is this a question because they really want to know? 
Is this a question because they're knocking? Is this a question because they're trying to rationalize their non-performance? So you can gauge the integrity of the person by the way they ask the question. It's a very insightful approach. And you can many times see what's really bothering them. So, you know, Israel is the ultimate client. And my, my pro-Israel advocacy on social media creates the world's largest law firm of defenders of Israel. So much so that I've got judges and many, many lawyers following me. One judge told me that because of my pro-Israel posts, he's decided to go to Israel. That's extraordinary. That's extraordinary. And you can really change people's opinion. You don't have to write about Israel, but you see a pro-Israel article, post it. If people make their comments, ignore them. But you should be known as the person that supports Israel. In fact, you should know in the Torah, our forefather Joseph, his bones were merited to be buried in Israel. And Moses, the greatest leader, his body was, did not merit. You know why? Because Joseph was identified by the Egyptians as an as a Israelite. Moses, when he went to Midian, was identified as an Ishmitzri, an Egyptian. He or she that identifies with Israel will have tremendous merit in Israel. And in fact, think about the 12 spies that went into Israel. The only ones we really know historically are the ones that spoke good of Israel. There's a historic amnesia and a myopic amnesia where we can't remember the names of those that spoke ill of Israel. I tell all my colleagues, you be the one to speak positively of the state of Israel. And even among my religious circles, my more religious circles, in certain Hasidic circles, when they spoo forth their theories, I'm very, very harsh with them. I don't allow bashing of Israel to go even within the most orthodox of circles. You know, you take obviously a very aggressive stance have you lost friends over these kinds of issues? Never, never. The only area where I could conceivably have lost friends is my pro-Trump advocacy. Our country has become so polarized. You know, I never allow the arguments to get personal. Never. If the person decides they want to insult me because of my beliefs, then I'm just going to cut them off and say, look, dude, we're not meant to have this conversation. You want to talk issues, we'll discuss issues, but never let it descend into the sewer with personal slights. And that's a good rule to have. And if somebody can't do with it, have a nice day, nice talking to you. How do you feel about when people respond, you know, okay, Israel's great, but it's not perfect. Why can't we, you know, critique it and, and so forth? You can critique it, but you have to critique it evenly. If you're going to talk about apartheid or racial inequality, number one, look at the Arab countries and see what they're doing. Do you criticize the Arab countries? If you don't, then that's anti-Zionist, anti-Semitic. You know, you gotta be even. You can't just target Israel. And no one is saying that it's perfect. Nothing is beyond criticism. 
Okay. You can challenge, you can argue, you have every right. Even if you live in America, although many people in Israel say we have no right, baloney. These are issues. You can discuss it. You can decide which Israeli charities you want to give to, which Israeli charities you're not comfortable with. I have no right to tell those living in Israel what they should do, but I could voice my opinion. But you develop a radar and a sensitivity for when the Israeli bashing is sincere or whether they're just, you know, if the pro-PLO people who go on student campuses, when they manufacture facts and they put up posters and they misrepresent facts, I don't debate such people because it's a waste of time. You can't debate people who don't have a fidelity and a loyalty to fact and truth. I want to just switch gears a little bit and go to a more of the personal story um, because you suffered a, a great tragedy in your life, the loss of a child. Um, and I believe authored a, a book subsequent to that that has attempted to grapple with those issues and provide succor to others in similar situations. Can you talk a little bit about that part of your life story? Yes. First, a correction. My daughter died. I never lost her. This is something that is so integral to my DNA and my sanity. God designated my daughter's soul to be my daughter, designated my soul to be her father. That designation preceded our physical existence. And the souls still live. So while a person could die, when I console people and I comfort them, I pay a shiva call to them. And they say things like, sorry for your loss. First and foremost, I tell them, your relative is not lost. One loses a race. One loses a basketball game. If indeed we believe the soul is eternal, and they're now in paradise in Gan Eden, that's winning the race. There's no defeat here and there's no loss. So that was a clarification. So a few days after 9-11, our 15 and a half year old daughter, Hindi, a beautiful Orthodox Jewish girl going to Beis Yaakov in Los Angeles, who was Tzom Gedalia the fast day after Rosh Hashanah, was diagnosed with a deadly pediatric cancer called Ewing sarcoma. We went through two and a half years of what I call the Shiva Maduri Gehenim, the seven gates of hell, with chemotherapy, radiation, a bone marrow transplant, as close I could imagine to Auschwitz on this world. On February 23rd, 17 years ago at 4.33 p.m., God took back Hindi's soul, and we were, we were bereaved. We were bereft. We were in the darkest possible black hole of pain that a human being can go through. So many people came to console us and comfort us. And it was very meaningful. But I was lost. What's interesting is that God puts the cure before the illness. And before my daughter got sick, I had this insatiable desire to learn about Bitachon, trust in God, from the Sefer Chovos Halavovos. 
during the illness, I now had a structure by which to attempt to navigate my emotions, how to deal with depression, how to deal with fear, how to deal with worry. I strengthened my resolve in Betachon, in trust in God during this time, but nevertheless, you can anticipate and brace on the steering wheel, anticipating the crash, but when the crash comes, you're still not ready. It's still too shocking. And even after with all that background, I was still lost seeking guidance. I had a strong degree of guidance, but this level of pain is unlike anything I have ever experienced prior to the diagnosis. You know, I was just like everyone else. You read the Jewish press, you see a full page ad of pediatric oncology kids. I turned the page beforehand because I couldn't look at them. Then you go through pediatric oncology and you learn about a new vocabulary that you're forced to accept. Whereas beforehand, I sought the company of the rich and famous. This humbled me. Now I only sought the company of good people, compassionate people. During my grief, I read up about as many books as you could imagine on coping with grief. I camped out in Barnes and Noble. I read Arthroll books and Feldheim books. I went online seeking guidance from everyone. I even went to a bereaved parent seminar where the extent of the advice is, it's okay to cry. Well, I was so beyond that, my tears had tears. I didn't need to get validation for my tears. But my particular niche was not why God did this to me. My particular niche was a thing called Farkakta Hashkafas, philosophies that come from within our world that are skewed somehow, that send bad messages to Orthodox Jews. I'll give you an example. You probably heard this, but you, now that I'm framing it, now you'll probably realize how ridiculous the comment is if it's not framed properly. God only gives tests to those who can handle it. Now, it sounds like a wonderful cliche. It's in fact a religious cliche, and it's dropped everywhere. But to somebody who's sitting Shiva, who's bleeding out of every orifice, who is crushed, so what are you telling me? I was targeted? Think what the upshot of that comment is. What, I'm an ubermensch? My tears are not regular tears? My blood isn't red? Oh, Baruch, you're different. That messed me up. I put together a whole list of cliches. For example, there's another cliche that is commonly used during Shiva, which also messed with my mind. Someone would say, Ain me limb. There are no words. At first, I would listen, and after the 40th consoler said, Amy Lim, I started to think to myself, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The Torah has a message for every single situation in the world. The commentary on the Malbum says that King David's Tehillim Psalms expresses every possible human emotion 
that a human can have. So you mean to tell me that the Torah has messages for every poor sap in the world, but for me, the bereaved parent, there's no message? Now, again, these people don't intend the upshot, but if you're thinking, if you're a cerebral person and you think about the upshot of these comments and you listen at the next time you go to Shiva and you listen to the 20 cliches that you'll hear that pass for consolation, you start to realize that we really don't know what to say. I decided to put my Torah learning to work. And I started researching, you know, every single time I would read the Parsha, the Torah portion of the week, and there would be a death or there would be a tragedy or there would be some type of anxiety or bereavement. I would dive into the commentaries. Every year for my daughter, Hindi's yard site, I would give this well-attended speech in Los Angeles, publish the articles, tackling different biblical stories dealing with grief and focusing on how to reclaim happiness after tragedy. That collection is now in a book called Grieving and Healing Through the Prism of Torah. It's available on Amazon. Unfortunately, whenever there's a tragedy within the Jewish community, this book sells. I would love nothing more than this book to never sell again and that tragedies would stop. But unfortunately, it's human nature that everyone will experience tragedy in their lives. This is a book that's written from the perspective of a bereaved parent. I don't elaborate on the pain. And I also validate grief. One of the cliches that I heard a lot of was people saying, how's he doing? Focusing on the cure without focusing on, is he grieving properly? And many parents that I know, or people that I know, who don't heal properly, it's because they didn't grieve properly. So I don't bypass that critical step. I realized and recognized that God wanted me to have this horrible experience, experience the grief. And to me, you know, the Torah is a barometer for how well and how loyal you are in light of grief. And that is the background behind the experience and the book. Without obviously summarizing the entire book in, in a few sentences, but what do you advise to someone making that Shiva call, speaking to that friend who has experienced a tragedy in their lives, not losing a child, but having the death of a child? What should someone say? People are at a loss. And I think people don't say anything because better to say something sort of antiseptic than say something offensive. And that's why our Torah is so magnificent. The halacha, the Jewish law is to say nothing when you go to a shiva. During my shiva, it wasn't so much what people said that I remembered. It was the warmth of their presence. I remembered the negative comments, but I don't really remember the insightful comments. You know, if you're a friend, let the person know that they're not alone. Let them know you're, you're there for them. Don't burden them with, if there's anything I can do, don't hesitate to call. You're burdening me that I should call you. The really intuitive friends showed up every once in a while, took me on walks, had coffee with me, would walk up to me in shul, put their arm on, hand on my shoulder with a little squeeze. You don't have to take on the big topics. And that's why the halacha is so magnificent. Say nothing. And if the mourner feels the need to speak, 
respond. But there is no agenda. There's no burden on the consoler that we have to know what to say. In fact, I have a book called Chizuk to the Bereaved Parent. It's actually called Rabbi Yochanan's Bone, Chizuk to the Bereaved Parent. Rabbi Yochanan was a Tana from the Mishnah whose 10 children died. And he had the bone of his 10th child. The child died in a pot of uh, boiling water. And when he would pay a shiva call, he would pull out the necklace and show the bone. And that was basically the theme of my first book. It's available on PDF. Anyone who wants it could email me and I'll send them the 500 page manuscript. And in it are fantastic articles, not written by me, collected by me on what to say and what not to say to a bereaved parent. Just in closing, Mark, it's so fascinating to hear kind of the, the panorama of your life. You know, on the one hand, you have this very strong, tough, strident, pro-Israel, pro-your client, you know, in the courtroom, not taking anything from anyone. And on the other hand, you have this extraordinarily sensitive and, and tender dimension to you. And obviously having experienced tragedy, which is can bring anyone to their knees. It's a fascinating, I don't want to say paradox or contrast, but I think it really reveals, you know, the totality of the human experience within your own biography. Um, thank you. I don't think it is a paradox. I think they, they mesh. They stim in Yiddish. Great lawyers have great sympathy. The really great lawyers are humble. Now, you might the way I'm in court, you might think I'm arrogant, but it's not. It's confident. There's a huge difference. I might be aggressive, but not abrasive. So there is a healthy blend of humanity and warmth that goes with, you know, when I represent a client, I'll go to their house to see pictures of their family member that was killed in a, in a car crash. I want to present to the jury the human pain and suffering. The only way you could really do it is if you're human yourself. You allow yourself to cry with your client. So it's part of the whole picture. It's a... A beautiful message to close on. You know, we're, we're here going into the holiday of Purim, which is a, a holiday of tremendous emotional highs. And there are other times in the year that are the lows and, and we have to somehow blend it all together, live it in one, in one body, in one spiritual odyssey for all of us. So I think that your life is a great template for many of our listeners to, to try to understand maybe how we can do that a little bit better in life. So Baruch Kohn, attorney, father, author, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Have an easy fast and a happy Purim. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.